0: Hello friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two landmark affirmative action cases, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. Last week, we previewed the case with a conversation about the text history and original understanding of the 14th Amendment. And I'm delighted that I have persuaded our dream team of uh, discussants to return this week to recap the oral argument. Ted Shaw is Julius L. Chambers, distinguished professor of law and the director of the UNC Center for Civil Rights. He previously taught at the University of Michigan Law School, where he played a key role in the Grutter and Bollinger case, which is being considered in the cases under consideration now. Ted, thank you so much for returning to We the People for this oral argument recap.
1: Always good to be with you.
0: And David Bernstein is executive director of the Liberty and Law Center at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He submitted an amicus brief on behalf of the petitioners, Students for Fair Admissions. And his newest book is Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classifications in America. David, it is great to have you back as well.
2: Great to be here, Jeff.
0: Ted Shaw, you were in the courtroom on Monday. Tell us about your impressions of the oral argument.
1: Well, the first thing that uh, that I have to say is I've been to the Supreme Court more times than I can remember uh, in various capacities. This was the longest uh, session of arguments that I think I've ever seen. It was extraordinary. Of course, the court has changed a lot uh, in how it's hearing cases uh, occasioned by COVID, but also I just think some changes the chief justice has put in place. So that was extraordinary. It was a marathon session. I couldn't help but think about uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, whom I think it's well known. Uh, She's been public about it, she has type 1 diabetes. And I was thinking about her sitting through that long session without a break. Beyond that, the arguments I thought were uh, well presented. Um, I thought it was a, a very thoughtful set of exchanges. I thought all of the advocates were uh, excellent in their presentations on uh, all sides. There's another thing about it that uh, I've had a long interest in. Uh, At last in these cases involving these issues from on through the present cases, but including the Michigan cases and the Fisher cases, students of color were permitted argument time, were fully allowed to participate. For me, that was a meaningful aspect of uh, these arguments. As for the justices themselves, uh, one couldn't sit there without being very much aware, whatever side of the aisle you're on, of the way that the court has changed. Um, you know, everyone came in looking to see how uh, these arguments, I think, were going to be received differently than uh, the prior cases. And it's clear it's evident, you know. Is there hope for the advocates of diversity that uh, some part, uh, if not the uh, entirety, of Baki slash Gruta slash Fisher, will be upheld or not be struck down? Well, you know, you always uh, have hope, even if it's only as a choice in the face of the alternative, which is despair. But it's clear that we are in another era, another time, and uh, you know, everybody, I think, is expecting there are going to be changes.
0: Thank you so much for that, Ted, and for sharing your experiences in the courtroom. Uh, David Bernstein, uh, Justice Alito seemed to cite your brief in the oral argument. Congratulations for that. Tell our listeners what that exchange was about and, and what your general impressions of the oral argument were.
2: Sure. Well, Justice Alito specifically raised a question. I don't think it has ever been raised in cases involving affirmative action before, which is about the classifications themselves. The litigation generally proceeds as if we know who our classes are, and the only question is, Uh, whether the racial classifications or ethnic classifications we're using, uh, whether it satisfies a compelling interest sufficient to get past the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act. But in this case, Justice Alito actually asked rather directly, which is the point I raised in my brief, as to whether the classifications themselves are so inexact, he used the word overbroad, that they are inherently arbitrary, which is a key phrase under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and being so arbitrary that they are unconstitutional. And the specific example he gave was a person from Afghanistan who might come and say, well, I contribute to diversity. You don't have a lot of people from Afghanistan in your class. And University of North Carolina would just classify him as Asian. Actually, in pre- in, in theory, you should be classified as white under the rules, but the common app doesn't actually explain what the different classifications mean. The application, the common app is the application that all the, the universities use. It just says Asian, uh, and it tells you that Middle Easterners white, but I'm not sure... Uh, where you'd put Afghanistan. So the underlying uh, government rules that lead to these classifications do classify Afghans as white. Justice Alito said, well, what does someone from Afghanistan have in common with someone from China, implying that they're both Asian Americans, uh, which is not quite correct, but it does actually show how confusing and somewhat arbitrary these classifications are that Justice Alito couldn't get it correct. Uh, himself in any event the unc council tried to sort of square the circle and said, well, we consider everyone individually, so someone's from Afghanistan, that would be interesting, and we consider them individually. And Justice Alito responded, well, if you're considering everyone individually, why do you need them to check the boxes to begin with? And went back and forth like that for a few minutes and didn't really, uh, I don't think it came to a very satisfactory conclusion. Uh, but uh, So that's an issue that's now sort of on the table, which I think uh, really previously has been alluded to at most in sort of side comments by Justice. And their opinions, which, but it might wind up being uh, uh, more front and center uh, this time. As far as the arguments went overall, I was actually a little surprised um, that both the liberal justices and counsel for the plaintiffs didn't try to do what often ha- has happened in the past in these cases and try to find an argument that maybe two of the conservative justices might be willing to latch on to, to save affirmative action at least uh, temporarily. Uh, in other words, there could have, I, I could have seen arguments that would have said that Harvard and UNC lose in this particular case, but we're not saying that race can never be used. In particular, there was a lot of discussion about, in the Harvard case, about other criteria that Harvard uses for admissions that wind up making it easier overall for white applicants to get in, in particular legacy admissions and certain sports like golf and lacrosse and that sort of thing, squash, that are typically played uh, by upper middle class or upper class kids. Uh, And I could imagine a compromise opinion, at least in theory, that would say, look, you are allowed to use race because diversity is a compelling interest, but only after you have gotten rid of other criteria you use that aren't essential to your mission that benefit uh, the majority, the white majority. Once you've gotten rid of those, uh, then you could use race. The argument that was being used by the players was basically, well, that wouldn't get us to where we want to be diversity-wise still. But I think the counter-argument would then be, well, nevertheless, you'll be using race less. And since it's, you're supposed to be using race in a narrowly tailored way, uh, that would make it more narrowly tailored. But I didn't see anyone really seizing on that or any other arguments that would allow the court to rule in favor of the plaintiffs in this case, but not get rid of the legality or abolish the legality of preferences for future cases. It really, really, They really seem to be Sort of telling the justices implicitly, it's all or nothing. Either you follow Gruder and, which is the previous, the big previous precedent, and say we're abiding by Gruder in this case, or we're giving up. That's such an interesting suggestion. And there was that interesting exchange
0: with Justice Kagan where the counsel suggested that if Harvard eliminated preferences for legacies and donors, then it would go from the 99th percentile to the 98th percentile of applicants, which would make it like Dartmouth. And Justice Kagan had the wonderful line, yet there are those who love it, quoting Daniel Webster's famous argument in the Dartmouth College case uh, in in the 19th century. Uh, What I'd like to do now is just go justice by justice and highlight what their main concerns were. And uh, let's start with Chief Justice Roberts and Ted Shaw. He had an interesting exchange with Seth Waxman, where Chief Justice Roberts said, we're talking about race as a determining factor in admissions to Harvard. Uh, Seth Waxman said, "Uh, there could be a year in which the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra needs an oboe player and it'll be the tip. And Chief Justice Roberts said, we did not fight a civil war about oboe players. What did you make about that exchange and about Chief Justice Roberts' questions more generally?
1: Well, uh, first, if I may, and it's related to what you're pointing to with respect to oboe players, uh, one of the ironic things, um, I think, David, about what you may be suggesting is that all of these other considerations, whether it's uh, legacies, whether it's uh, people who uh, engage in activities that are mostly engaged in by white folks or whatever, those things are not subject to strict scrutiny. In some ways, I think I might hear hints of uh, of an effects test in the point you're making. If you suggest that maybe they ought to get rid of those other considerations, there's nothing that would compel them to do that, uh, even if we may think they're bad as a matter of policy. Chief Justice Roberts um, is well known for his opposition to affirmative action slash diversity efforts to considerations of race. Um, He is the intellectual descendant or heir of former Chief Justice Rehnquist. And it's hard to think about many cases in which he is uh, ruled in favor of uh, either diversity efforts or affirmative action, although people have been thinking that perhaps his institutionalism would give pause, give him pause with respect to overturning precedent. I thought that uh, those questions, yeah, of course we didn't fight a civil war about oboe players. Uh, There's an irony of conservatives becoming uh, in some ways purists uh, when it comes to issues of race in our jurisprudence, uh, you know, the idea that any consideration of race uh, is discrimination. And I think, with respect to Chief Justice Roberts, in my mind, as I sat there and I listened to the questions he framed, the only thing I kept coming back to was the question about whether his institutionalism would override what has been his long-standing antipathy toward affirmative action slash racial considerations in any corner. So um, it was hard for me to think beyond that when I listened to his questions.
0: Thank you for that. David, let's turn to Justice Thomas. He asked specifically for comments on the question we were talking about last week. He said, Mr. Norris, would you spend a few minutes on the originalism argument that was made at the end of the last case. Justice Kagan at the end of the North Carolina case has said, I don't know why no one is talking about originalism. And Mr. Norris said that the best source is the United States brief on reargument in Brown, which painstakingly details the legislative history and how the 14th Amendment saw it as a ban on all racial classifications. And then he talks about how the Freedmen's Bureau examples we were talking about last week were remedial and not race conscious. There was a vigorous dispute about that and what the meaning of Brown was. What did you make of that exchange about the question of the original understanding of the 14th Amendment uh, that Justice Thomas raised?
2: Yeah, I thought um, I thought it actually uh, counsel did a pretty good job overall of addressing the originalism argument. Uh, you asked me last week to... Give the argument that that slide would give, and I think he probably basically did what I expected him to do. I did not really expect him to cite the uh, Brown brief, if only because, uh, first of all, it was pretty clearly lawyer's history. In other words, it was what we call lawyer's history in the profession is when you have a conclusion you want to reach and you then work backwards uh, to try to reach it, which is not, lawyer's history isn't always wrong, but it's not sort of the epitome of historical scholarship, but there has been a tremendous outpouring of historical scholarship uh, regarding uh, the original meaning of the 14th Amendment since 1953. So I thought it was a bit odd to go back and rely on that, but it was consonant with the attorneys attempt to really keep bringing things back to Brown and plaintiffs were really focused, you know, arguing very consistently that the meaning of Brown is that there shouldn't be any uh, racial classification. But it was interesting. And maybe this is an event. Av- I mean, I think five hours is a little bit excessive, especially since the two cases were basically, with you know, very similar to each other, let's say that. Uh, but this is one advantage of the way that the court is now doing its arguments where there's less interruption, there's less of Justice Scalia and or other vocal justices who sort are of dominating the whole discussion with whatever they want to talk about and it allows for discussion of a broader range of issues. Like Justice Thomas sometimes has some interesting things to say, an oral argument, but for a good 20-plus years, he didn't say almost anything because he he basically didn't like that the format of just everyone breaking in with each other, so I'd rather just let the lawyers talk. So this gives him the opportunity uh, to weigh in. But I think that... With 160 or so years of precedent and a lot of, you know, a lot, basically, I would say that for the most part, uh, the framers of the 14th Amendment didn't really explicitly consider uh, exactly what equal protection was going to be with regard to race consciousness. I just don't think and ultimately uh, the opinion will turn on that, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Justice Thomas and maybe joined by Justice Gorsuch write a concurrence discussing their view of what the original meaning is. Ted, I need to ask what you thought about the discussion of the
0: meaning of Brown. The Solicitor General, Elizabeth Proligar, said that Brown was very much not about a ban on all race consciousness, but but an effort to help Black people. What did you think about that and the the position of the various justices on the the meaning of Brown and colorblindness?
1: As you asked that question, I was just making a note to myself about that issue, whether Brown said that all race consciousness was banned uh, by the 14th Amendment. Uh, You know, she was right about that score. Um, Brown didn't say that. Uh, What Brown said, and there's still a lot of discourse about what Brown meant, even though the case is uh, part of the enshrined jurisprudence of the United States. But what Brown said was that in the field of public education, Uh, separate but equal, is unconstitutional. It didn't go further than that in that moment. There has still never been, although there may be at the hands of this court, a ruling of the Supreme Court to say that all race consciousness is per se unconstitutional. Brown was about discrimination in public education. And to the extent that some people have tried to interpret Brown Uh, to include Justice Harlan's statement in dissent in Plessy that the Constitution is completely colorblind. Uh, He didn't say completely, but the Constitution is colorblind. That's not something that has yet been embraced by the Supreme Court. So on that score, I think she was technically correct. But again, I'm mindful of the changes on this court. I read the briefs uh, several times, the Amiki briefs, and there were many of them. And I read them the week before last and thought to myself, they are so excellent. There's no way uh, we, the pro-diversity side, uh, could lose. But then I would think about this court and I would think there's no way we can win.
0: David, let's return to our justice lineup. Justice Alito came next. He asked lots of questions about the way affirmative action works, including about the meaning of the term underrepresented minority. What does that mean, he said. He asked about evidence that Harvard gave Asian American applicants lower personal scores. And he asked whether Harvard sold Justice Powell a bill of goods about the fairness of its admissions process. Uh, Tell us about what Justice Alito was interested in.
2: So I think Justice Alito, he uh, like we already said, raised the issue of the classifications themselves. He previously, in Fisher, uh, the prior from Revaction case, quoted a brief from the Asian American Legal Defense. I don't remember exactly what the name of the group was, saying something very similar. Uh, that is that what possible commonalities could we find between all the different ethnic groups that incorporate and national groups that incorporate within the term asian and i think he was getting you know trying to get into the nuts of bolts of us because it was actually a little surprising to me council especially for north carolina was being very slippery about some of these issues and i wasn't really sure whether it was intentional or they really didn't get properly mooted and prepared for the issue of how their processes actually work, other than to repeat over and over that we engage in holistic uh, review, which was sort of a mantra for both sides. Uh, I know we're going justice by justice, but at some point, Justice Kavanaugh asked counsel for the University of North Carolina, if someone is from one of these Middle Eastern countries, he rattled off a bunch of countries, what box does he check? And counsel for the University of North Carolina said, I don't know, which I thought I almost thought was... Either a shocking lack of preparation, or intentionally refusing to acknowledge that Middle Eastern students are classified as white. Because if you look at the just at the Common App, you know, the Common App is pretty obscure in the classifications. But first, ask whether you're Hispanic or not, then ask for your race, and then it says if you are white, where is your white uh, background from? And it says Europe, Middle East, or other. So you don't have to be extremely well prepared for this case to know that Middle Eastern uh, is classified under the white category. Uh, so I thought. So I think that um, you know the uh, pre- preparation that both the, all the lawyers had for the defense was basically to just say, "Well, we engage in holistic review, we engage in holistic review," uh, and Alito is trying to drill down, say, "Okay, but." Um, there are several colloquies where they say, well, it, it's never dispositive. We always engage in holistic review. And then Alia would say, well, why does anyone need to check a box then? And they say, oh, well, you need to check the box because then we'd have, otherwise we wouldn't be able to meet uh, what we want to do with regard to diversity. And then Alio would say, but you just said it, it doesn't make a difference. And it, again, not very productive conclusions there, but Alio was trying to uh, really get to how does this actually work in progress? Don't just repeat holistic review over and over. Ted, let's talk about justice. Sotomayor, she had a lot of
0: powerful points, including the 25-year expiration date that Greta identified, which would expire in 2028, uh, might not be enough time to achieve genuine diversity. And she also emphasized that sometimes race does correlate to some experiences and not others. If you're black, you're more likely to be in an under-resourced school. You're more likely to be taught by teachers who are not as qualified as others. You're more likely to be viewed as less academic and having less academic potential. How do you tease that out? Um, tell us about those and other concerns of Justice Sotomayor.
1: Well, she did make those uh, those points. No one mentioned, and I mentioned, I probably mentioned this last week, no one mentioned the fact that uh, even Justice O'Connor backed away from the 25 years uh, after she was off the court. Uh, but she's also, she doesn't have the kinds of influence, of course, she had while she was on the court, but it was never. Uh, that was never a holding. Uh, that doesn't get in the way of uh, the conservatives on the court trying to interpret it or apply it as a hard and fast deadline. I thought that Justice Sotomayor um, spoke to that, although I wish somebody would point out, well, actually, she did at some point. I think it was either she or Kagan pointed out that uh, diversity, if that's the consideration, that doesn't end. Um, and the question is going to be whether or not uh, the institutions have to do something to achieve diversity. There may come a time when they no longer have to have a thumb on the scale, and I thought that was right on point. But the other thing that Justice Sotomayor did, I thought very effectively Alito and some of the other justices were uh, focused on this check-in-the-box. I mean, that was so important to them. Uh, And I think she totally demolished that point. That's not to say that I don't expect that they are going to abandon it, but she made the point that those boxes uh, to which they refer are not uh, constructed or uh, placed there by the institutions. That's uh, in the common act. And even there, they don't have impact or effect in admissions decision. And so I thought that she did a good job of of countering that uh, check-the-box, which uh, that reductionist argument that the conservatives were focusing on. And, uh, you know, in general, uh, I thought that she took apart uh, a number of arguments that were being um, profit, uh, including the point about the educational benefits of diversity that uh, Justice Thomas kept asking about over and over again, uh, you know, and seemed, uh, well, not seemed, he made it clear that he wasn't moved by the responses he heard, uh, nor was he moved by At UNC, in the UNC case, the arguments made about the atmosphere on the campus with respect to uh, racial hostility. Um, I thought she picked up on those points very effectively.
0: David, let's talk about Justice Kagan. She several times asked counsel, Do you think that there's a value to racial diversity? What about in the military? What about justices hiring law clerks? Um, Is there a value? diversity, and and she made a a strong statement about how I thought the whole point of America was pluralism and different people working together. What was the legal significance of those exchanges with Justice Kagan about whether or not there's a compelling interest in diversity?
2: Well, I think that um, to some extent, it's an elaboration of Justice Sotomayor's point. I don't think that it's really deniable that to some extent, people of different Of what we call racial groups in the United States will uh, bring different perspectives, whether the classifications are uh, sufficiently um, well designed to do that for all the groups is a separate question, but certainly I could easily imagine a difference in the class discussing certain criminal justice issues or certain other issues between a class that was half African-American and half white and one that was 100% of either. and I promised last week, I said that uh, Jeff himself wrote a good piece about that based on his experiences as a GW, uh, George Washington University law professor quite a while ago, and the Republicans always stuck with me. Uh, But I also think she was trying to do two things, one of which is she was appealing to the courts conservative with a small uh, C nature, that the court is an elitist institution Uh, Until recently, all the justices had gone to Harvard or Yale, just to give you uh, some, some sense of that. They are, of course, they tend to get invited to, you know, they tend to hang around with elite members of society and be concerned with the views of their own social class. And this, I think, had a lot of influence on Justice O'Connor back in the day. Well, if the military thinks it's important, and corporate America thinks it's important, uh, and so and the educational institutions think it's important, you're the that your people basically the kind of same kind of people you are, the kind of people who went to Harvard and Yale and so forth are telling you how important this is. Uh, how could you not claim it's important? And I think that um, what that line of questioning is missing in practice is that the justices on the right have a very different outlook, I think, than previous generations. First of all, the Federal Society on on the sort of pulling side of this has been very effective at creating something of a counter-establishment where one's social network and uh, other networks tend to be like-minded people, not just people from your own sort of group, not people who attend Nita Totenberg's uh, cocktail receptions uh, and other Georgetown cocktail parties. But also, I think that there has been on the push side, pushing the justices away from uh, the establishment, the establishment at the univer at the law at the law school level, at the media level, at the corporate level, has been so hostile to some of the justices that they don't really care what these people think anymore. Uh, you know, Justice Kavanaugh used to teach at Harvard, which I would think would make him sort of sympathetic to Harvard's interest, but then Harvard kind of booted him out as soon as he was nominated to the Supreme Court and was accused with still no real evidence uh, many years later of uh, engaging in sexual assault. And I keep seeing him referred to by people who should know better as a serial rapist. Uh, he was never accused of rape to begin with, much less serial rape, and there's really no, you know, and so forth. But, you know, that kind of thing kind of tends to alienate you from uh, from, from, the, the, from the kind of people that, you, that, that would normally uh, potentially have some influence on you. So I think she was uh, trying to do that. But I think she was also just trying to um, per- potentially try to persuade some of our colleagues, look, uh, we should be at least somewhat modest about what we consider to be a compelling interest. Uh, you all claim to believe in judicial restraint, and you're the sort of more right-leaning legal thinkers tend to uh, emphasize how widely we think that justice is have any more insight into the the pulse of what's going on in the world than anybody else You're saying look so we're sitting up here in washington uh we're we're not lawyers but we're getting input from all these different institutions about how uh important diversity is and uh if you want to really be uh engaged in something resembling judicial modesty one of your favorite uh Uh, issues, uh, Jeff, uh, then you should be modest about your view, that your views on what is important and what's not um, may not be correct. Thank you
0: so much for that. And uh, lots of lessons about how my views may not be correct over the years. Thanks for remembering that old New Republic piece. I was just looking for it. It may be the one where I described talking to members of the Indian Supreme Court and Justices O'Connor and Breyer. Uh, In the around 2003, and how that discussion seemed to have influenced Justice O'Connor's position that there had to be an ending point. It It was during that discussion when she said, when will it end? And then she wrote that into law soon after. And Ted Shaw helpfully reminds us that she did walk that back in 2010 and say that her opinion should not be viewed as imposing a strong ending point. Let's turn to our next justice in the lineup, and that is Justice Gorsuch, uh, he returned several times. Ted Shaw to the claim that if, if if Harvard wasn't trying to get donors for art museums and get good squash players, then it would pursue race neutral alternatives. Tell us about that exchange and and what his concerns seem to be.
1: He did make that point and seemed to to want to uh, pursue it at more depth and it's somewhat of a different point, but it reminded me of. Uh, Justice Thomas's opinion in uh, the Grutter case in which he said that Michigan didn't have to pursue what it defined as excellence. It could lower its standards and uh, it wouldn't have as much of a challenge in admitting students of color, particularly African-American students. Well, uh, Gorsuch's point was not quite that point. But my reaction to his point is that diversity, uh, when it was adopted by Justice Powell, and as it has been developed over the years and pursued, is diversity um, writ large. And so I find it ironic that now some people are suggesting that institutions shouldn't be able to pursue other forms of diversity. Uh, including the legacy or the uh, people who make donations, etc, I mean that certainly is not racial, and as a consequence, strict scrutiny doesn't apply and so whatever you think about arguably whatever you think about those priorities of the institution, they're not totally irrational, you may disagree with them, and so it's interesting that that's being raised in the context of diversity, saying that, okay, the institutions can walk that back and that would uh, perhaps allow them some space to do what they're trying to do with respect to race. I'm not sure I see that. And that doesn't mean that I don't have sympathy for uh, the anti- Uh, uh, you know, alumni or anti-fundraising, you know, efforts, et cetera. But that stuff isn't going to change. That's my point. Uh, Whatever Justice Gorsuch was getting at, uh, I don't see those things as going away. And I don't think the Supreme Court can press those issues. And I have no doubt that if they came to the court on their own, outside the context of this diversity case involving issues of race, Uh, the court wouldn't have any sympathy for arguments that institutions should be barred from those considerations.
0: Well, that brings us to Justice Kavanaugh. And on the question of race-neutral alternatives, he offered three. He said, your position will put a lot of pressure going forward if it's accepted on what qualifies as a race-neutral alternative. And he asked counsel whether the following three were race-neutral— uh, you said socioeconomic is race neutral, top 10% plan, race neutral. What if a college were going to give a plus to descendants of slaves? Is that race neutral? And counsel said, no, that was not race neutral. Uh, David Bernstein, what did you make of that exchange and Justice Kavanaugh's other questions?
2: Well, I find that I find that fascinating in part because I think uh, there are two prominent people that are at least mildly prominent people who I know of who've raised the issue of whether uh, you could have preferences that would be limited to descendants of slaves, and that would be a non-racial classification. One of those was me, because I talked about this in both my book and on the Volokh conspiracy, then about a month later, Nicole Hannah Jones, the editor from the New York Times and the who's running the 1619 Project, I'm sure not getting the idea from me, but coming up with it independently, tweeted out that you know it looks like affirmative action is going down, but why do we need affirmative action for like people like Cuban Americans anyway? It should be limited to descendants of slaves, and maybe that's able will be even better. So I found that very interesting because I don't think it's ever been. Raised before it would be sort of consistent with the originalism perspective that you could have remedial preferences based on f- something related to former legal status uh, and former sort of caste status rather than race per se. I think it's an interesting question if that were adopted, whether the current majority would say that this is, you know, consistent, this is correlated strongly with race, but it's not race itself. And it's not quite race itself because. Uh, 21% of African Americans in the United States are first or second generation immigrants, or from se- first or second generation immigrant families, and they would not be included. So you and they are a more than 21% uh, factor in admissions at places like Harvard. So it would be correlated with race without being racial. More generally, this issue of what you're allowed to do if you're not allowed to explicitly classify people by race uh, is something that will undoubtedly arise if uh, Harvard and UNC lose. Uh, Back in the case involving school busing uh, by race, uh, the Seattle School District case back from a little over a decade ago, uh, Justice Kennedy wrote a very interesting opinion, which hasn't gotten nearly the attention that I think it deserves, where he said we really need to distinguish between race-conscious policies and racial classification policies It's one thing he says, and he was against this to classify kids by race and tell them what school they need to go to. It's another uh, thing to say, Hey, we have two different places where we could put the new public school. If we put it in location, a, the public school will be 98% white. If we put it in location B, it'll be 70% white, 20% African-American, 10% Hispanic. And that would be better from social policy. And Justice Kennedy's argument was that that's race conscious, but that sort of race consciousness for non invidious purposes should be permitted even if we crack down on classification. But he was the only one to join that opinion. So I don't, but that, but you know, justices don't always join opinions even when they agree with the basic point if they don't think it's necessary for the case. So I think it's an interesting question to what extent, if assuming Harvard and UNC lose, the court would be willing to countenance uh, admissions policies that would be uh, created in part, in large part, because they want to keep ensuring a certain level of racial diversity, but have other good aspects like 10% plans, taking the top 10% uh, of each each high school class in the state. That does add racial diversity, but it also makes sure that the benefits of state universities are spread throughout the state. It encourages strong students not to transfer to stronger high schools because They want to stay in the top 10% of the class, which is good for the weaker high schools to have some good students there and so forth. So the question is, if race is the motive but not the only motive, and you're not classifying anybody, does that pass strict scrutiny? I think that remains to be seen. Thanks very much for that and
0: for reintroducing that distinction that Justice Kennedy made, which you mentioned last week, between racial classification policies and race-conscious policies for non-invidious purposes. Ted Shaw, we're turning now to Justice Barrett. She asked a bunch of times how colleges could consider application essays where the applicant talked about cultural traditions related to race. And she was also very interested in finding out when the endpoint would be for considering race in college admissions. Several justices focused on those two questions. What did you make of them?
1: Well, I don't know how much I have to add to the endpoint issue. I've kind of spoken to that already, except that, let me put it this way, the the slavery through Jim Crow continuum, uh, and I keep saying you have to consider those together. They're not entirely two separate uh, phenomena. That accounts for enormously more years in American history than this period since the end of Jim Crow segregation, since the end of the 1960s. And so the notion that um, this should be cured already and race will disappear isn't, I think, logically consistent, but it also is inconsistent with the facts as we see them with respect to the role that race still plays in inequality in American life. Uh, but I also wanted to turn to this um, other point she made. She, I think the question that she asked in some ways Paralleled some of the questions um, by uh, Justice Brown Jackson with respect to somebody writing an essay and talking about pride and um, et cetera. You know, what happens if somebody is saying that all of this experience of being an African American is integral to my uh, life and my experience? I think she might have some sympathy for that. Um, I have to say, that advocates of diversity uh, and affirmative action are conscious um, because you're kind of reaching and uh, uh, looking for any possibilities. of uh, The fact that Justice um, uh, Barrett uh, has two Black children she's uh, adopted um, may give her another kind of consciousness about some of these issues, just as uh, I think some people are aware of uh, Justice Kavanaugh's history with respect to uh, having more diverse uh, law clerks—do we think, or do I think, that that necessarily means that they'll they will be the two votes that will save the day for diversity? Um, uh, Uh, advocates. uh, I'm not sure I think that, but when people think about the possibilities, uh, they're conscious of that. I do want to, if I can, quickly go back to this issue of descendants. And I wanted to point out that Georgetown University, as you no doubt know, um, has, uh, because it found uh, in its history, the fact that the uh, that Georgetown, the university, at some point was saved uh, by um, the sale of slave enslaved people uh, back in the 19th century, uh, and Georgetown has gone on now to say that we are going to admit some students who are descendants uh, if we can identify them of uh, the families of the people who were enslaved. That's an interesting. Uh, and concretized example, perhaps, of this question of whether descendants can be treated differently. Um, but I'm also taking, I want to say in passing, by uh, this Kennedy uh, point you made about uh, race consciousness as opposed to discriminatory measures. Uh, you know, Swan versus Board of Education was really the case in which Uh, this example or this context of where you play schools and the impact on segregation. That was back in 1971, the case in which the court sanctioned busing as a remedy. That was the case that sanctioned that. Um, And in some ways, uh, Justice Kennedy's Parents Involved opinion raises uh, that even while Justice Kennedy, uh, I think, and the Parents Involved decision Ultimately, its impact for me was that it went back and overturned uh, Green v. New Kent County to the extent that Green allowed majority to minority transfer provisions and said that those were constitutional, um, uh, you know, and and, then parents involved. The court effectively even said that those voluntary efforts um, wouldn't be allowed. I couldn't resist making that statement. Thank you for that and for reminding
0: us of those really important cases, which provide the context for this one. David Bernstein, we're now at Justice Jackson, um, and as Ted Shaw said, she did raise this question of what you could talk about in an essay. And she said, as I understand your no-race conscience admissions rule, there could be two applicants. One says, I'm from North Carolina. My family's been here for a long time. And given my family background, I, I want to honor my family's legacy and the second says, I'm from North Carolina and my family's been here since before the Civil War also, but they were slaves and couldn't attend this university. As an African-American, I have this opportunity and I want to honor my legacy. And she said, as I understand the rule, the two applicants would have different opportunities to talk about their experience. The first applicant could have his background considered and the second couldn't. Tell us about the significance of that and, and, and your takeaway from if, if the court does overturn Grutter, what are people going to be able to talk about on essays?
2: That's a really good question. I mean, I thought I think that that was a rare case. I thought you know all the lawyers uh, generally did a good job. But I thought that was one the one case where one example where I thought that um the lawyers for the plaintiffs uh, didn't didn't handle it especially well because if I'm remembering correctly, the answer was, the way that at least the way that Justice Jackson phrases said, well, no, you you couldn't consider that, but you could consider the person whose family has been going to UNC for six generations or whatever, which could only be white families because black students weren't admitted till the nineteen fifties or sixties uh, to the university. But I think I think the right answer from this perspectives would have been you could talk about whatever experiences that you want, whether they be ethnic, religious, racial, sports, or you know, musical, uh, uh, family background, single family mom, overcoming poverty. You can talk about whatever you think has made you you, and whatever motivates you uh, for going from uh, to go to the university and the university shouldn't just say, well, this is a really persuasive essay. It's about, it really moved me just as much as this other one, but because this one happened to come from, you know, an Asian person, we don't really, we we just treat that as neutral, but this one comes from a Hispanic candidate, so we give it extra. Um, And, you know, it does raise an irony. I was just thinking about uh, earlier today that one thing you almost certainly can do if, Uh, regardless of what happens uh, in the case, is you could talk about your leadership of the Black Students Club at your high school or that you were involved with the NAACP or that you were involved in the Latino Students Organization or that you worked uh, helping Latino immigrants uh, who come to your town or whatever it may be, things that are ethnically or racially related, but are just, you know, activities a high schooler might engage in. I can't I can't see a way you could write an opinion that says we could get credit for uh volunteering for a soup kitchen, but you can't talk about the fact that you specifically volunteered for a soup kitchen from members of the Gua- of the for Guatemalan immigrants, and this moves you in particular because your family itself is from Guatemala. Uh, and what I'm getting at, uh, sorry to be long-winded here, what I'm getting at is that the irony may be right now, the record suggested that for the most part... Uh, Harvard and UNC are basically putting you in a little bit of a different application pool, depending on what group you're in, but not really looking specifically at how tied you are to that group. But if you're not allowed to just look look at group membership, but you are allowed to look at community activity, what you may see is giving students more of an incentive to be ethnically or racially conscious in which extracurricular activities they choose. And to the extent that one objection that the justices have and the questions about what do you think about um, affinity groups and affinity housing that Justice Coney Barrett asked and so forth, if your one objection you have is that you're sort of balkanizing the population by encouraging sort of racial identity uh, with these policies, you may actually uh, encourage more of it by having race-neutral admissions, but still allowing people to talk about how a certain activity affected their worldview and their life and uh, their goals in life than you would if you just gave a plus for race as such. Many thanks for that. And thanks to you both
0: for walking through the nine justices and their questions so thoughtfully. Ted Shaw, as we sum up this helpful and, and meaningful recap, give us a sense of what you think the constitutional argument of the liberal justices will be? Is it essentially that Bakke held that intellectual diversity is a compelling interest and affirmative action serves the goal of intellectual diversity, or will they broaden out the notion of diversity to include other values that were not in Baki?
1: Well, I keep saying that I think the the use of the term affirmative action, even though uh, both affirmative action and Uh, the term diversity were very much in play on Monday. Uh, But uh, that term hasn't been bandied about much in recent years. I think that the court, at least those who would uphold Ruta, et cetera, uh, will still talk about the impact of and the importance of diversity as a value not only in higher education but for the entire country even though this is a these are two higher education cases. But I still think that that's very much what's going to be in play in terms of the discourse uh, just as I think the conservatives on the court are uh, going to focus on colorblindness and basically a, A vision of the Constitution that SFFA um, has been pushing. Also, you know, again, the impact of the issues raised on behalf of Asians and Asian Americans. um, It's going to be very interesting to see how uh, those play out in whatever is ultimately decided. I think that uh, there was a lot of concern on the part of the court about. Asians and Asian-Americans and discrimination against them. That's a new issue uh, that SFFA brought into this case strategically. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's going to suffer for attention.
0: And David Bernstein, when you sum up the constitutional arguments that the conservative justices seem likely to adopt, is it essentially that the 14th Amendment subjects all racial classifications to strict scrutiny? and? short, an imminent threat to life and limb, as the late Justice Scalia put it, they can't generally be justified, or or do you see a different approach here?
2: I think there's some chance that the majority may go back to the, I don't know what to call it, the for-justice opinion that was not joined by uh, Justice Powell, but that argued that the University of California's uh, quota system in uh, the Bakke case was unconstitutional. Uh, they did not rely on the 14th Amendment. They relied on the plain meaning of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which bans discrimination in higher education. Uh, and I think Gorsuch was particularly interested in this because Gorsuch famously wrote a plain meaning opinion saying that transgender individuals are protected from discrimination uh, based on sex, because based on sex means based on sex. And if you treat someone differently because they wear women's clothes when they're biologically a man, and if you would treat them if they if you wear women's clothes when you're biologically a woman, you're engaging in sex discrimination and so on. And there was this very interesting back and forth where uh, he got, I think it was Seth Waxman to say that uh, when it comes to Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the meaning of discriminate is plain, uh, but when it comes to Title VI, which involves education, that it's not, that it's ambiguous. And he said, but it's the same word. So that, putting aside the interest that one might have in that specific discussion, which was which was interesting, uh, I think it showed that at least Justice Gorsuch was very interested in the possibility of focusing on uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Currently, the rule is that we uh, interpret both the 64 Acts, Title VI, and the 40th Amendment the same way, but I'm not really sure there's any good reason to think they mean exactly the same thing. And of course, one advantage of relying on the 64 Act is that Congress could, in theory, step in and express its disagreement with the court by changing the language of the act or amending the act, which it can't do with the Constitution. But I think there's a strong intellectual case for just separating the two out. We've sort of gone to this weird situation where we're looking at what people said in the in Congress in 1868 or in state legislatures or in courts around that time to interpret a statute that was passed in 1964, uh, which doesn't really make a heck of a lot of sense ultimately, uh, except by judicial fiat. So I do think there there's that. And beyond that, I, I would expect, you know, very interesting. I, I, I think we're going to see some concurring opinions. I think Alito showed himself to be very interested in this issue of classification. I think Thomas is likes to write his own opinions in affirmative action case. He's going to focus on the notion that diversity is too ill-defined and incoherent to be a proper uh, justification for using race. And uh, I'm not sure which, if any, of the opinions will get a full solid five justices on their side. Thank you so much, Ted Shaw
0: and David Bernstein, for a thorough, thoughtful, and thought-provoking oral argument recap Dear We the People friends, you can dig in even further by going back to the transcript and following along, and we will look forward to reconvening in the spring after the decision comes down to explore its implications. Ted, David, wonderful to talk with you, and thank you so much for joining.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Jeff and Ted.
0: Today's show was produced by Melody Rao, and engineered by Greg Shackler. Research was provided by Sophia Gordell, Kelsang Dolma, Liam Kerr, Emily Campbell, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week, dear We The People friends, please read the transcripts of the arguments in the Harvard and UNC cases, and for extra credit, please read the briefs as well. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple. Recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager to read briefs and oral argument transcripts to educate themselves about the Constitution. Thank you for considering doing that. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.